Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Marich, the Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. Thank you for listening. In this episode, we're going to explore the little-known area of shadow investigations, in which accounting firms oversee internal investigations being performed by outside counsel and their forensic investigations counterparts in an effort to ensure that the investigation is scoped appropriately, such that it will provide sufficient information for the audit partner to comfortably sign off on the auditee's financial statements. Joining us are two very experienced practitioners, Lisa Vicenz and FTI's own Mark Grover, each of whom have worked on investigations that have been shadowed by accounting firm forensic practices. Lisa is a partner in Cleary's New York office, has extensive experience working in Latin America on FCPA and other cross-border issues. She regularly represents public companies and their boards in internal and governmental investigations, advises on the development of compliance and integrity programs, and counsels clients in advance of strategic transactions. Lisa has been recognized by Chambers USA for FCPA and named among Global Investigation Review's Top 100 Women in Investigations. Mark Grover is a Senior Managing Director at FTI Consulting. His experience includes a wide range of complex accounting advisory projects, forensic accounting investigations, accounting-related business disputes, and financial statement audits. He's been involved in a variety of matters, including the interpretation and application of gap and gas, advising clients on SEC financial reporting issues, and the investigation of various complex accounting issues, and has participated in multiple accounting investigations to address concerns raised by management, the audit committee, auditors, or whistleblower allegations, and has assisted with the response to formal and informal SEC investigations of accounting errors and irregularities. Welcome, Lisa and Mark, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Scott. Great to be with you. Thank you, Scott, for having me here. It's great to join you and Mark in discussing this topic. Well, thank you both. So since the passage of Sarbanes-Oxley 19 years ago, shadow investigations have been running in parallel to many internal investigations involving publicly traded companies. Most often, they take place when an internal investigation has the potential to impact the company's audited financial statements. Typically, the audit firm will involve their forensic practice and ask them to shadow the forensic accounting and investigative procedures to make sure they're scoped properly and will likely yield enough information for the audit partner to sign off on the financial statements. Mark, it's not always clear when an accounting firm finds it necessary to perform a shadow investigation, you know, whether there are different levels of depth depending on the issues at hand. What criteria do accounting firms use to decide if a shadow investigation is warranted? And are there different levels of depth? And who at the accounting firm performs those investigations? Thanks, Scott. The audit firm's threshold assessment of whether a shadow investigation is warranted is done within the context of the audit firm's responsibilities under Section 10A of the Securities Exchange Act. Namely, Parts A and B of that section require that the audit firm have procedures to detect illegal acts as well as that when the audit firms become aware of a potential illegal act, they must ensure that the company has taken appropriate remedial measures. 
In my experience, when the company has determined that it's necessary to engage outside counsel and forensic accountants to investigate potential accounting or financial reporting improprieties, some type of shadow investigation typically is performed. The extent of the shadow investigation procedures really depends on not only the facts and circumstances of the situation, you know, such as whether or not there is potential fraud and if the potential fraud uh, is in roles critical to financial reporting, as well as how widespread the issues are, but on the personal judgment of the audit firm executives involved. So I've seen a wide spectrum of reactions from the audit firms over the course of various shadow investigations. Regardless, they're typically going to assign one or more forensic accountants to the matter to at a minimum make sure that the nature and scope of the investigative procedures are sufficient, as well as supplementing the forensic accountants with technical accounting subject matter expertise as needed. They'll then add more forensic accountants as needed depending on how extensive their review will be of the underlying emails, accounting records, and other relevant evidence. Well, thanks, Mark. So Lisa, you and I spoke recently about kind of two distinct categories of shadow investigations. Soft touch shadow investigations in which the audit engagement team will want to understand the methodology underlying the investigation and the impact of its results on the financial statement, but not necessarily get into the weeds. These, you know, sort of soft touch investigations kind of stand in contrast to the a deeper level shadow investigation, which require a sophisticated audit of the various investigative steps such that they are more process focused as opposed to just focusing on the methodology and the outcome. Can you walk us through some of what you consider to be the most important considerations of a full-blown shadow investigations, including issues like managing privilege concerns and providing the audit teams with comfort in signing off on the financials? Thanks, Scott. And, you know, as both you and Mark mentioned, there really can be a range of the investigative steps that an auditor takes in shadowing a company's internal investigation. In the context of, I think, as you described it, a full-blown shadow investigation, an auditor will often bring in a separate forensic team whose goal is to conduct really an audit of the company's investigation at every stage. So that includes, as you mentioned, you know, an audit trail that really looks at a lot of the process, procedural parts of the investigation. So that includes auditing and raising questions about the investigation scope and its work plan, confirming the steps that the investigation team took to collect the relevant information, weighing in on the selection of custodians and the search terms that are used reviewing the investigation's key emails and receiving interview proffers, and requesting and receiving regular updates on the progress and the findings of the investigation. Now, the purpose of this full-blown shadow audit is to ensure that the investigation is credible and that it follows the best practices that are expected of investigations, and also that there's nothing that arises in the investigation that could either impact the financial statements or raise questions about the integrity of the members of management who provide representations or certifications in connection with the company's financial statements. Now, as you can imagine, and as you mentioned, when you have a shadow team involved like that in every step of an investigation, that can raise a number of privilege concerns. Specifically, there can be concerns about waiving the privilege over the investigation itself, 
which would really be a welcome roadmap to any prospective litigants who are looking to make a claim against the company based on the conduct giving rise to the investigation. Now, in my experience, there are definitely a number of steps that you can take to mitigate this privilege concern while still providing the auditors with the information that they need in order to feel comfortable with the investigation and its independence. And I say mitigate as a part of to cure because there still is a concern that providing the auditor with information about your investigation can result in a waiver of the attorney-client privilege. Specifically, there's case law in the U.S. that treats the auditor as a third party. And so, again, while we are talking about mitigating, it's always important to keep that in mind and to take special care to always assert and continue to assert the privilege over your investigation. So one way to mitigate this risk, just quickly to provide some practice points, is to focus on sharing the factual and process-related parts of the investigation and not the actual underlying legal advice. Another way is to try and limit the amount of documents that are actually turned over and incorporated in the auditor's work papers, and instead providing updates and reports on progress orally. And finally, I think, and most important, it's really key to be open with your audit team about your concerns so that they understand the importance of confidentiality over the investigation. And so they're sensitive to what ultimately ends up in their work papers. This makes certain that you're able to provide them with the level of information that they need to be comfortable with the investigation and its findings, while still taking care to make sure that they understand the importance of privilege over your investigation. You raised some really important points. I think as long as the audit and forensic practices are kind of clear in their expectations of, in terms of what they stand to hear from us as an investigative team, attorneys and investigators, I think that goes a long way toward building some trust and also alleviating the tension that sometimes occurs in these situations. Those are some great points you make. So, as a practical matter, Lisa, the you know, companies that find themselves needing an investigation to gather facts and guide decision-making, they also need the shadow investigation so that they're not putting their auditors in a situation where they're uncomfortable signing off on financial statements, which are you know also very important. And the company certainly needs sign-off from their auditors. But the two can sometimes be at cross-purposes. So what advice would you give companies to manage these sometimes competing interests? Harkening back to what you just said, Scott, I really do think that the key is communication and transparency. You know, you talk about the investigation and the shadow investigation working at cross purposes. But in my experience, that it's not really so much that they are at cross purposes. In fact, you know, and I think as Mark mentioned, I think the goals are really aligned. Everyone wants a credible investigation, an investigation that's independent and that will hold up to review. So I really think it's less about working at cross purposes and more about looking at what are can be competing interests and figuring out how to make it so that you're really working all towards the same objectives. So I think in my mind, I think it might be instructive to talk about how this can come up. And I've seen it come up in a couple of different ways in the investigations that I've worked on. So one way that this often comes up is with respect to scope. So obviously, investigation teams are always mindful of mission creep and avoiding a runaway investigation. 
And when the investigation team engages with the auditor, it can sometimes feel like the auditor has its own independent goals, financial and statement impact and management integrity, and that those goals, while they may be overlapping with the investigation and its objectives, aren't exactly coterminous. In my experience, however, the goals of the shadow investigation generally can be satisfied without sacrificing the goals of the investigation or leading to a runaway investigation. And you know, the way to make sure that happens is to really talk to your audit team about what steps you're gonna be taking to ensure that the scope of your investigation will address their concerns. Again, I think in the, at the end of the day, it's gonna be in the interest of both the auditor and the investigation team to make sure that there's a narrowly tailored scope that's gonna root out management wrongdoing and any financial statement fraud. A second way that this often comes up is in the timing of the investigation. As you know, the shadow audit is often taking place against the context of an ongoing audit of the company's financial statements. And the shadow team itself can feel a lot of pressure from the company's audit engagement team to provide them with reassurances and resolution about the investigation before any financial reporting occurs. However, again, you know, the credibility of the investigation isn't really tied in terms of a timeline with financial reporting. The timing of an investigation requires the team to follow the evidence where it goes and not to cut corners in order to meet an audit deadline. And in my view, again, these aren't necessarily competing interests. Both the shadow audit team and the investigation team share the goals of conducting a credible investigation, but also they share the goals of not impacting the company negatively and impacting its financial reporting to the extent possible. So a lot of times, again, communicating and coordinating are really the ways to make sure that you're able to achieve both objectives. For example, the investigation can prioritize certain custodians that provide management reps, or the investigation team itself can provide its own representations about the status of the investigation and its preliminary findings and whether they impact the financial statements. These are, again, not competing interests. These are just different interests that can be resolved oftentimes through careful communication and coordination. Although certainly the, the whole notion that an investigation has its own timeline, I can't think of an investigation of an issuer that I've ever been involved in that didn't include very early in the discussion when their next 10K or Q or audit committee meeting is happening and how they would like to see it wrapped up before that, that milestone. And it goes back to both our earlier points of the importance of having clear communication between all parties, because, you know, sometimes that, you know, what they're looking for is achievable, but often, especially in a complex multi-jurisdictional matter, it often is not the case. So Mark, you've been involved in several accounting investigations during which there is a shadow component. When is it advisable to keep the briefings with the accounting firm separate from briefings of the client and other interested parties? And, and why is that? Thanks, Scott. I guess just as an aside, before I actually answer your question, I must say when you just talked about 10K and 10Q deadlines, I don't think I've ever been involved in an investigation where the initial expectation was it would be done before the next Q or K was due. But anyway. In terms of your question about keeping the briefing separate, first of all, consideration needs to be given to situations where the alleged accounting misconduct includes one or more members of management, or otherwise it is possible that members of management may need to be interviewed as part of the investigation. 
In such cases, it is advisable to keep the briefing separate so that the investigation team can have frank discussions with the audit firm without the presence of company personnel relevant to the investigation. Along similar lines, the auditors may prefer speaking directly to the investigation team so that they can speak frankly about any concerns that they may have. Secondly, while the various parties may have their interests aligned to at least some degree, as we mentioned earlier, presuming all parties want a thorough investigation to be completed as quickly as reasonably possible, it is not uncommon that the company and its auditors may have different views about the appropriate scope and nature of the investigative procedures and how to interpret the investigation's findings. In such cases, it can be helpful for the investigation team to hold separate briefings with the company and the auditors in order to avoid unnecessary confrontations between the company and the auditors when the auditors ask probing questions, raise the possibility of expanding the scope of the investigation, or potentially jump to premature conclusions about the implications of certain preliminary investigation findings. Rather, in my experience, as the independent investigation team, we're often able to talk through issues with the auditors that often result in the audit team's buy-in on refining, i.e. reducing, what may at first be overly broad knee-jerk requests by the auditors. I typically find that the auditors appreciate the investigation team being frank and thoughtful about the scope of their work and their findings, and once that level of trust is established, it can pay dividends throughout the remainder of the investigation. Finally, one other consideration is that I've seen situations in the past where we've briefed company management prior to the auditors and have gained insight from management that helped provide important context to the preliminary investigation findings, which helped with making decisions about the most appropriate follow-up investigative procedures, as well as with the implications of the findings. In such cases, I believe the quality of our investigation was enhanced by the separate briefings with management, and that put us in a better position to brief the auditors. Thanks, Mark. So Lisa, you touched upon this, as did Mark just now. While it's in the client's best interest to complete a thorough investigation and also for the accounting firm to be satisfied that it is sufficient in scope, we talked a little bit about situations when the accounting firm is asking for investigative or forensic accounting procedures that the investigative team may consider to be unnecessary or excessive, and that actually could have significant budgetary implications for the client. When that's the case, do you do them anyway? Do you try to get the client to sort of acquiesce or do you push back? Well, I would say neither. I don't think that you should acquiesce, but I wouldn't necessarily describe it as pushing back. I'd say engaging in a productive dialogue with the auditor. Um, can often exactly <laughs> can often help a situation like that. And so I do think though that you know one of the first things to do, and it is a dialogue, is to really try to talk to the audit team and to try to understand what additional steps they're requesting, and more importantly, why. Oftentimes, understanding the purpose behind the question, the concern can help pave the way toward finding a middle ground, a compromise that gets them the comfort and the information that they need without incurring a large expense or a delay in a timeline. Now, on the other hand, I also do think it's important for the investigation team to be very clear in communicating to the audit team exactly what additional costs and delays their requests would add and more importantly, to, you know, to demonstrate your credibility, to be able to support that concern with evidence, to show them, you know, if you're asking for these search terms, it's going to result in this many more hits. If you're asking us to take these steps, you know, we're hearing from our forensic auditor that this transaction testing or these additional background checks 
are going to take this much time and cost this much money. So again, I think it is in the interest of both teams that the investigation that's conducted is credible, but I also think it's in both teams' interest that it not go off the rails. And so I would call it a constructive dialogue. (laughs) You know, I've always found you to be far more polished in your providing feedback than I. I seem to recall a couple of conversations to which both of you and I were a party on that exact on that exact topic. So um, I often am. <laughs> so is there ever a situation in which the nature of the allegations or perhaps uh, new findings happen in the midst of an investigation that potentially could create a conflict of interest for the audit firm such that they should not be privy to the investigation or at least certain findings? And if so, what, you know, how do you manage that? Well, I think that's a really good question. And it's something that I think it's really the responsibility of both the auditor and the company to be mindful of because independence is critical for both parties, right? And so I do think that there could be situations where the audit team is either a witness or a potential participant in an alleged fraud. Sometimes you know that right from the start. Sometimes that only becomes apparent as you begin to investigate the conduct. And that's obviously the more complicated and difficult situation. In any of those situations, I think it's important for both sides to speak up and to address the issue and to figure out the best way of really making sure that an investigation is going to be credible and that you're not compromising the investigation, like you said. So from my mind, I think it wouldn't be appropriate if that's the case for the members of the engagement team who could be a witness or could have been you know, even a culpable participant in the alleged fraud to be privy to the investigation or its findings. If this happens in one of my cases, I will immediately take steps to wall off the relevant members of the audit team from the investigations and its findings until there's been a dialogue and you know it's been determined how we're going to deal with the situation. And I've also actually gone even further and I've told the auditor that they should be taking steps to preserve work papers and communications of the audit engagement team as a potential witness and also taking other steps necessary to preserve both the independence of the investigation, but honestly and quite frankly, just as importantly, the credibility of any ongoing audit that they have. No, it becomes very challenging under those scenarios, whether you know that there may be some need for auditors to be witnesses at the outset, or you know something comes to light in the midst of the investigation. Those can be some challenging issues. And I think you're right. I mean, I think the theme is this of this whole episode is just making sure that there's a frank and open dialogue between all the parties. So, you know, so you're in the best possible position to respond to a situation like that. So, Mark, as a follow-up to what we were just talking about, if there is this situation that becomes, you know, let's say an extreme example of this where it's no longer appropriate for the audit firm to have a window into the investigation because this is becoming abundantly clear that that would be problematic. What happens? Does a different accounting firm perform the shadow investigation, or is it simply a matter of the audit firm is going to have to issue an opinion with maybe not the same amount of visibility into the investigation than they would normally have? 
Sure. I guess I'd start by saying, in my experience, I've always seen the shadow investigation procedures performed by forensic accountants from the audit firm. So, you know, clearly that's the standard approach. Now, hypothetically speaking, if a different forensic accounting firm was used, and you know, I guess a premise for this hypothetical is that the circumstances don't taint the audit firm's independence, but yet they, the decisions made, they need to use third-party forensic accountants to do the shadow work. You know, I'd expect the audit firm would view that as the use of a third-party specialist that would normally not require reference in their audit opinion, but it could theoretically result in a qualified opinion if the audit firm is not fully satisfied with the results of the shadow investigation. Regardless, from a timing perspective, I'd expect that using a third-party firm would slow down the process, which frankly maybe is already getting slowed down if members of the audit firm are maybe subjects of the investigation anyway, and unfortunately increase the likelihood that there would be a delay in when the audit firm would be willing to sign off on the financials. So all in all, it's presumably a situation that all parties would want to avoid, if possible. Well, yes, I, 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 think, uh, I think we're all in agreement on that. So uh, now that accounting firms are regulated by the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, the, the PCAOB, shadow investigations seem to have intensified from you know, the early days when the forensic practices you know, simply were looking you know, for some visibility into the work plan and to concur in its, the likelihood that it'll yield the, the information needed, to now sometimes wielding considerable influence over that work plan over the course of the investigation. Is it a good practice when developing an investigative work plan to account for the additional time and, and the necessity of separately interacting with the shadow investigations team and you know also maybe updating the various constituencies separately so that there's the preservation of privilege and whatnot i mean how these can be complex issues maybe um, mark give us your insights from your experience sure scott you know with respect to the first part of the question i'd say a resounding yes that you know you should anticipate the additional time commitment involved but having said that, I guess the way I'd frame it is that I believe it's important to explain to your client that a big variable with respect to the scope and timeline of the investigation is the reaction of the auditors. Of course, at the same time, you're dealing with the other big variable, which are the twists and turns the investigation will take as procedures are performed and evidence is gathered and interpreted. So definitely from a timeline perspective, it's a best practice to build in time to not only separately interact with the auditors, but also to potentially perform any expanded scope procedures that the auditors may request. Now. Regarding additional language in the engagement letter, the effect that the auditors are a wild card from a budget perspective, I've personally never done that. But nonetheless, I typically will emphasize that in early discussions with the client, and will note that as a key variable when providing budget estimates to the client. Thanks, Mark. So, Lisa, you've been involved in numerous major cross-border investigations, and as well as you know those in, in the U.S. Have you found there to be any differences in shadow investigations and comparing maybe domestic investigations to those that take place in, say, Brazil, for example? Yeah, I think that there are some really major differences which are worth discussing. And as you mentioned, you know, I have been involved in investigations that have been shadowed both in the U.S., but also in other countries, including, I would say, most prominently in Brazil. And so, you know, we've talked a lot about the range of responses that auditors can take and the different forms that shadow investigations can take. 
And in my experience, you know, in the U.S., that it really is a range depending on the investigation, on, you know, how senior it reaches in the management and the like. And oftentimes what you'll have is an audit engagement team that maybe starts off asking some questions and then consults with its national office or brings in forensic members. But in Brazil, for example, it's much more common, I would say it's almost standard, for the engagement team to very quickly bring in their separate forensic audit team to assess the conduct, review the proposed investigation team and plan right at the outset before the investigation's even started. And then once the investigation begins to conduct a more thorough audit of the investigation, more what you, I think, at the beginning called the full-blown shadow investigation. Indeed, I think this is sort of remarkable and really telling. In Brazil, every single one of the major accounting firms has their own completely local forensic audit firm. It's a separate firm with its own LLP or LLC that, you know, whose members are fluent in the local language and who have experience in conducting these types of audits. They typically have a pretty well-scripted audit trail drafted that they follow for each of these shadow investigations, which involve a number of audit steps, including confirming how the data is collected and verified, actually testing search terms, and conducting even their own transaction testing and background checks, among other things. Notably, and as we've discussed, you know, these costs are not reflected in the company's annual audit process, nor are they typically contemplated in the original budget for an investigation. One thing that companies have learned pretty quickly in Brazil is that they are going to need to have a separate budget and plan for the shadow investigation because it's going to be a separate component on top of the audit and on top of the investigation. One trend to note is that, you know, this phenomena of the sort of standardized shadow investigation is spreading in Latin America beyond just Brazil. I've now participated in similar processes in Mexico and Argentina. And I think for a lot of the same reasons that it started in Brazil, because there was this concern about, well, are external investigation teams really prepared and able to conduct investigations in these countries? Do they present more of a risk to the national audit firms such that, you know, maybe more careful oversight is required or needed? But regardless of the reason, it is definitely something that started in Brazil as as a very common process and is now beginning to be that way in other countries in the region. Well, thank you, Lisa. So, you know, we've talked a lot about how shadow investigations have, have intensified over the years and how they sometimes can be, maybe create some amount of tension between the primary investigative team and the forensic auditors that are shadowing what they're doing. And yet shadow investigations are equally important for a variety of reasons. For our listeners who are less familiar with shadow investigations, what is it about shadow investigations that make them so important and who benefits from them? Lisa, and then maybe Mark, you can follow. Sure. Thanks, Scott. And I think, you know, my response is really going to echo, I think, a lot of what we've been talking about throughout this session, which is, you know, the allegations that give rise to a 10A investigation often cast doubt on the integrity of a company's financial statements and its management. 
conducting an independent, incredible investigation is really a key step for the company itself to preserve its reputation and to best position itself to its many stakeholders, as well as to any authorities who investigate any potential wrongdoing. The purpose of the shadow audit, on the other hand, is to ensure that such a credible and independent investigation actually takes place. As part of its mandate, the shadow audit team has to certify the independence and credibility of the investigation. In that way, in my mind, the goals of the company and the shadow audit are perfectly aligned. And to answer your question, I think they benefit both. And I will wholeheartedly agree with a lot of what Lisa just said. You know, once again, the auditors will do this to, in part, satisfy their professional obligations under the Securities Exchange Act. And why that matters from the client's perspective is the auditors will not be willing to sign off on the quarterly or year-end financial statements until they are satisfied with the adequacy of the investigation, you know, as we've discussed. So from the perspective of enlightened self-interest, the company will want the audit firm's shadow investigation to go as smoothly as possible in order to meet the key dates in their financial reporting cycle. You know, whether it's a 10K or 10Q filing deadline, or as we've all probably experienced, usually earlier in the, the reporting timeline is scheduled quarterly earnings release. Also, in my experience, the shadow investigation can serve as, and this is where I think it benefits both parties, is it can serve as a helpful, fresh set of eyes that can challenge the scope and observations made by the investigation team, which can result in a better and more thorough investigation that is more likely to withstand the scrutiny of regulators such as the SEC. Thanks, Mark. Well, this has been a great discussion. I, I really, I can't say that I've ever had a discussion about shadow investigations without actually being in the midst of one. So this was that's nice from that, that standpoint too. So thank you so much for both of you for, for your time today. My Thanks pleasure. Thanks, Scott. So that was Cleary Gottlieb partner, Lisa Vicenz, and FTI Consulting Senior Managing Director, Mark Grover. This concludes this episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director at FTI Consulting's Risk and Investigations Practice. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eat Strategy when we'll hear from Gibson Dunn partner and former Wolf of Wall Street prosecutor Joel Cohen on pump and dump schemes, what they are, and how to avoid falling victim to one. If you have an idea on a fraud or corruption case, topic, or guest you'd like to hear from on a future episode, email us at fraud eat strategy at FTIConsulting.com. Thanks for listening. 